You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So as you're listening to Psalm 50, it might have stood out to you a little bit. Psalm 50 recounts a prophetic word from God to the people of Israel. It stands out because when we typically think of Psalms, we often think of men speaking and pouring their hearts out to God. Yet here, God is the main speaker. It also is unique in the sense that it's a psalm of Asaph. All the rest of his psalms show up in the third book of the psalms. So if you don't know, the psalms have been typically divided into five books that are divided up by doxologies to kind of part them. And so Asaph's psalms show up in most of them in the third book. But here he has one pulled forward into the second book that splits a set of Sons of Korah psalms that we've walked through and transitioned us into a set of Davidic psalms to come. There may be many reasons why it's dropped in here, and I'm not sure that I know all of them or even most of them, but at minimum, this psalm picks up the theme of a glorious God and his kingdom that has been in the previous psalms and transitions us through an instruction and correction and invitation to the people of Israel to worship him truly. And David, in his psalms, maybe none more fitting than Psalm 51, is an example of that very thing. And so we'll see what God has here, and then as we move forward, we'll see David as an example over and over again to do this. So this God here gives correction uh, to his people, and this psalm walks through here in four different parts that we'll walk through this morning. So the first one, God the supreme judge is announced. Second, God rebukes misguided and empty worship. Third, he rebukes hypocritical worship. And then four, God invites us to worship him truly. So let's pray again quick before I start. Father, we need you. Um, We want you to be present here. We want to hear from you. You had a word here for Israel, your people, and you have a word here for us. Um, So would you give us ears to hear it? Would you give us eyes to see you as you are? Um, Eyes to see your glory? to be changed by it, for our hearts to be warmed by it, um, that we may praise you for who you are. So would you do that this morning, in these moments? We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting with the first one here. God, the supreme judge is announced in verses one through six here. So I'll just read one through three again for us. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, and around him a mighty tempest. So So there's three things I want to highlight here in this first section about God. So the first thing we see, God, the Lord, is God over all creation. The psalm right at the get-go bursts into praise to God. It says, from the farthest east... To the farthest west, everything you can see, everything you can imagine, I've created, I own, it responds to me, I uphold it, all of that is mine. So God is the God over all creation. We see this later in the psalm in verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So God doesn't just own it, but he knows it, he understands it, he created it, he upholds it. We may own things at times, 
But we don't know the depths of those things, and we certainly didn't create them. And so not only does he own all things and the creator of all things and sovereign over all things, but he knows them all. All the birds of the hills he knows. So the Lord here is God over all creation. Two, the Lord is judge over his chosen people. The language in verse three here are descriptions of God appearing at Mount Sinai. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. This is used in Exodus in the Old Testament, and these are also picked up in the New Testament um, in Hebrews, that these are descriptions of God coming to his people at Mount Sinai. He wants his people to think and remember that moment when God came and spoke to them, and he made a covenant with them. He set them apart at that moment. He's a God who came to his people at Sinai, entered into a special relationship with them, and he has spoken again. And this time his word is against his people. So I've seen here is that God is the creator over all. God is the judge over his people in these first few verses here. And three, we see the Lord calls his creation to gather his people and bear witness as he judges. So verses four through six, I'll read it for us here. It says, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So Mount Sinai. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So he is the supreme judge and calls all his works here to bear witness. All his creation is called to the scene here to witness. The word call here is actually the same word that's translated summons in verse 1. And so if you think about creation here being called or summoned to the scene here, I come to gather his people, bear witness to them, bear witness to the righteousness of God. So there's kind of courtroom language here. Every, everyone's coming in, the crowd's gathering. He's summing creation in with his people that they're gathering in so that he can speak to them, so that he can judge them. This may include heavenly beings and angels, but the psalm more has a sense of just personified creation here. Everything that he has created is leaning in and gathering his people and surrounding this moment here. The illustration that popped in my head, it's a little dated and haven't seen the movie probably since then, is, is Lion King. So I don't know if the last time you saw that was like 15, 20 years ago. There may be a better illustration, but that's the one that was imprinted on my mind that you think of this moment of, of Simba being born and there's this ceremony and you look around, there's all these animals, there's all creation. He's up on the mountain, so everything's leaning in here. Everything's here for this moment to see what's gonna happen, to be a part of the event that's about to take place. And so all creation comes, you got, the, you got the elephants, you got the lions, you got the tigers, you got all this, and uh, Rafiki, I think it is, you know, wipes the, breaks the thing and lifts him up. Everyone bows down, everyone cheers, everyone exalts. Everything is dialed into this moment. Even the clouds part and the light shines. And just like this, all of creation is bearing witness to the, the truth of this moment, that he is the king to come. And similar in this psalm, God's authority emanates so powerfully that his creation is vibrantly described here as gathering his people, as leaning in just like that, as testifying to call witness here to God's glory and righteousness as he speaks to his people. And this is the same witness we have today. So it's in Psalm 50 here. It's also in Psalm 19, 1 through 3. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. 
day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. So see again, to belabor the point, the activity here of creation is not a neutral party, it's not just sitting to the side. Creation is declaring, proclaiming, revealing, gathering, speaking, bearing witness to the glory of God. Every tree, every blade of grass, every bird bears witness. I was driving home the other day while I was thinking about this psalm, so I take the river road. There's a lot of light poles. There's also a lot of trees. And I was just thinking there's tree after tree after tree after tree. And started to fill it out a little bit. I see a tree. That one proclaims his beauty. I see this tree, his wisdom. See this tree, his kindness. This tree, his goodness. This tree, his nearness. This tree, his righteousness. This tree, his glory. God's creation is an overwhelming witness for us today. And it was for Israel as well. Try to make it home today without seeing that witness. It'd be like trying to get through the state fair without seeing a person. You can't do it. The witness is so near, so present, so obvious, declaring the righteousness of God who speaks to us, who has spoken to us, who is with us. So there's this overwhelming witness for us today in Israel. All of creation, it's like the plant that sits on your windowsill that leans towards the sun no matter what direction it's located. It bears constant and faithful witness to the glory and righteousness of God and where the sun is that it needs. So all creation is a surrounding witness of truthfulness and righteousness of God. And God's gonna rebuke his people. There's no second opinion needed here or higher court to appeal to. All that God has created is leaning in to this moment as he speaks to his people. So now that everyone's gathered like Lion King and how much more than just a movie of Lion King, what an incredible image and sight here of God's creation coming in and surrounding God's people in this moment. God himself is the judge of all things and he will address his people here. So point one, the supreme judge there is announced and his people are gathered. Two, God rebukes misguided and empty worship, verses 17 through 15. I'll read 8 and 9 for us. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. 10 through 15 go on here to give a few reasons, two reasons I'm going to highlight this morning of why God will not accept these sacrifices. The first one that appears to us here is that they thought that God had some sort of needs that they were meeting. So other nations sacrificed to their idols to appease them at times, to care for them. Their gods needed to be carried, to be put to bed, to clean, cleaned, fed. Their idols needed to be served, protected, defended. And Israel started to follow suit here a little bit. They're looking at the nations. They see the ways that they worship their gods. They worship their idols. They try and reach out to God. And they say, maybe this is something similar. And so they're bringing these sacrifices and thinking, God's, maybe God's getting something here from us. But God, in the context here, teases this out farther to help them really understand, to, to think about it here. You know, the God of verses 1 through 6 here, and then the way that Israel and us often can respond to it. He says, whatever you think you give to me to enrich me is already mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. 
I know every bird. You're giving me stuff from your, your flock that's really mine. You're not giving me anything that isn't already mine. You're not serving any need I have. Whatever you give me certainly does not feed me. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Verse 13 says, as if I'm hungry and need to be fed by this. As if I have cravings like you guys do. And if I needed help, he certainly wouldn't ask us. He could call thousands of angels to serve any need that he would have, but he has no need. And so God belabors it here and, and fills it out a little bit to say, think about this. This God of the universe created all things. Are you really serving me in simple ways here as if I need something, as if there's maybe an exchange here? This group's not rebuked because they're bringing sacrifices, but the misunderstanding of what these sacrifices were for. The Apostle Paul, preaching in Acts, makes this point abundantly clear as well. He says, The God who made the world, everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so they could have viewed God, and we can view God, in a transactional way. We can see him so smallly that we think we scratch his back and he scratches ours. We think we're giving something to God and maybe we'll get what we want. We're doing the things he wants. I pray before meals, is that a thing he wants me to do? Or here on Sunday morning, is that a thing he wants me to do? And maybe if I do those things, he'll give me the things that I want. If we think this way, our worship and our efforts are likely trying to attain something other than God himself. There's something else we want, and God may be the means for it. We want to earn a blessing, or a feeling, or an experience that he may or may not give. But when we worship God, he will give us himself, and it's enough. Let that be enough for you, to know that God is for you, whether you receive the blessing you want or not, the healing you want or not, the feeling or experience you want or not. He has given himself to us, and that is enough. That is all we truly need. There are needs being met in this moment, but it's not his needs. They're ours. We need forgiveness. We need hope. We need help. We need reassurance. Verse 15, he says, call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Don't bring sacrifices trying to earn something or pay something off. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. We can genuinely and freely come to him for rest for our souls in the midst of this broken and painful world. He wants to be worshipped, not bargained with. The second error we see here that shows up a couple times in the psalm is that their worship seems to have drifted to a mere external practice or form rather than a heart-level motivation of thanksgiving and praise to God. He wants our genuine delight, not a mask or external posture. He doesn't want us just to act happy, but to actually be happy. And he has given all we need to genuinely love and delight in him. One temptation for us that might be specific uh, to our church, based to others, 
is that our service has a, a liturgy that's recognizable, that when you come here, you come to expect it. So to give an illustration first, I can drive home from certain places without even thinking about it. I don't know if you've ever been there, and even when we moved, we moved about a mile across the river about eight years ago from an apartment to a house, and I'd come back the same road, 280 from the north, every single time, and it took about a couple months for my zoning out to like not go to our apartment, but go to our house. It becomes so familiar and so repetitive that if I'm not thinking, I just get into that track towards our apartment, or now towards our new house. I can drive home often without even consciously thinking about it. And we can tune out as well with the familiarity of our literature, our liturgy, sorry. We hope that you anticipate these moments, that you know that confession's coming, that you know the assurance of pardon is coming, that you know that the table is coming. Instead of tuning out or zoning out because you know what comes next, we hope that these moments are more real for you, more anticipated, more joyful, more assuring each time That when you confess your sins, a faithful God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever forgives those sins. That you would believe it and embrace it more and more. You'd anticipate it coming and not just zone out because you know what comes next. And so there's a a temptation in, in repetition and with our liturgy to do that very thing. To strip the heart, the engagement of who God is and all that he is for us and just do the external motion, just do the habit, and have your mind wander somewhere else because you can drive home without it. So we hope that that's the case, that you believe it, rejoice in it, anticipate it more and more, that it becomes more vibrant, not more dull as we walk through our services. So that's the first group that he, he rebukes here. Point number three, God rebukes hypocritical worship. He says in verses 16 and 18 here, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statues or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. So the other segment of Israel here that God is speaking to is a a group that's double-minded or or two-faced as they live. They declare God's covenant in public, but they live in contradiction to it. The passage goes on in the coming verses to list many ways that they have contradicted and broken the Ten Commandments, which are the core element of that covenant that God made on Mount Sinai with him. He says, I covenant with you with blood here at Mount Sinai. You are my people, and lays out the Ten Commandments and other things. And so they would take his covenant on their lips, but, but despised actually obedience to it and did the opposite of it at many times. It says they gave approval to thieves. They shared company with adulterers, approved of them. They speak lies and deceit. They slander their brothers and sisters. In this passage, they might not be the thieves and the adulterers, but they betray what God says is good and give approval to the evil that they are doing. All while reciting and giving lip service to the commands of God and thinking they dwell securely. Maybe looking great on the outside and happy in church every week. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. God lands the rebuke here 
in verse 21 with a profound statement. He says, verse 21, these things you have done and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. That's worth dwelling on for a moment. You thought that I, God, was one like yourself. I thought God was like them. There's no neutral ground in this life. Either by faith in Jesus, we're being made into the image of God, the image of Jesus that's all good, what is good and right and true and glorious and pure and holy, or we'll be making God into our own image. It's going one way or the other. We're either reading the Bible and understanding God truly and hearing him and saying, I want to be like that. Jesus, change me, transform me like that. Let me be like you. I am sinful. You are holy and perfect. I want to be like you. Or we're going to think that he's one like ourself. I'll make a God like me. If I'm envious, I might think, well, maybe, maybe God's envious too. If we're careless, maybe God is careless too. If we excuse our lusts or sins, we desire to believe that God likewise will excuse these things. We make God into our sinful image to justify ourselves rather than seeing and worshiping him as he truly is. It goes one way or the other. We're either moving towards his image and the grace of Jesus Christ, or we're building an image of God that's not true and likely in the image of our, ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. We don't worship God because he approves of all that I do and all that I am. We worship him because he's beyond us. He's something greater. He's a creator. He's something holy. He's something perfect. And he loves me in spite of all my wickedness. He doesn't approve of my wickedness. He loves me in spite of my wickedness. And he doesn't just leave us there. He conforms us to the image of his son. He helps us grow, he helps us change, he helps us love truly, to be patient, to be kind, things that are good for our soul and create joy and happiness. He moves us toward those things. I don't want to worship a God that's in the image of my sinful, stuck self. I need a God to help me get out of it, and a God that loves me in spite of it. There are all kinds of buildings in this city that have the words Jesus, or church on them that do exactly this. They have made a God one like themselves to justify themselves, their passions and their sins and their desires. That might be emblem of all of these crowds here. Even the first group, they bring sacrifices, like kind of a trade here. Well, I like trading with people, I like things being fair, so maybe if I do something here, I'll get something back. Again, that might even be an image of making God like ourselves rather than worshiping him as he is. So there's all kinds of churches, churches, buildings with Jesus and church on it that do this very thing. But the Psalms are warning for us this morning, not talking to them, talking to us. Do you follow the very thing you profess? Do you delight in God and see good in his instruction? Or do you go on sinning willfully, thinking that either God doesn't see it, or worse, that he gives approval to it? You must look at our own hearts. You may fool 
everyone around you. God isn't fooled. And if that's you, and you are guilty of any of these other things, or that very thing, hypocritical worship, there's amazing news. Amazing news in this psalm. Remarkably, after all of this, rather than God just bringing down the hammer on his people, he offers an invitation to them to worship him truly. It could have been over. And it's not hard to see that. It's not hard to see that justice here. People that honor him with his lips, but their hearts are far from him, that mock his commands and despise discipline, despise instruction, that worship him as other gods, other idols are worshiped, that he needs something from us, that he's got appetites like us that we can meet, and maybe he'll give us something in return. It could have been over there, and I think we would all agree with that, but it wasn't. Part four of the psalm, the last two verses here, God invites us to worship him truly. Verse 22 and 23. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. There is none to deliver. God's the creator of heaven and earth. He has authority all over. He is the supreme being. That's why there's none to deliver. There's no other court to appeal to. There's no other power to try and find. There's no other way to go. Creation, gathered, Simba here, whatever it takes, all gathering around to say the righteousness of God in every inch of this world. There's no appeal to happen. God of the universe, here he says, so mark this. Lest I tear you apart and there is none to deliver, because there is no other. Then he says, the one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This word here is an instruction to both camps and a hope to both camps here. To the first group, he says, I've got no need for you to meet. Do not worship me in any vain or obligatory sense or any superficial sense. Bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and rejoicing. That's what glorifies me. I don't need stuff. Just come with thanksgiving for what I've done. That is what glorifies me. And to the second group, he says, the one who orders his way rightly, who follows me, who trusts me, who's instructed by me, I will show the salvation of God. There's a foreshadowing here in this psalm that I haven't touched on yet. So verses 3 through 5, we've highlighted that where it talks about Mount Sinai. So God is speaking and making the old covenant, the first covenant, there with his people at Mount Sinai. But in verse 2, it might have slipped past us, it says, God shines forth the perfection of beauty out of Mount Zion. There's a mountain shift here. There's a covenant shift here. We're not back at Sinai anymore. We're not giving sacrifices in the old covenant, those that he's correcting and rebuking here. There's a looking forward here. He says, I will show my salvation. Something future here. The perfection of beauty shines forth out of Zion, not just Sinai. Out of Mount Zion, Zion, out of Jerusalem, God's salvation shines forth. The salvation found in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the complete and perfect sacrifice for us so that all that is left 
is to believe it, embrace it, to offer thanksgiving and praise. If that's all he wanted back then when the sacrificial system was instituted, that he says, I want a heart here that comes to me with thanksgiving and praise. That's the sacrifice that I want. That's the point of this. And bringing this to say, hey, you need a sacrifice on your behalf. And it's not a bull, it's not a goat, it's not a bird. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ, who comes for you. And so if bringing thanksgiving was what they did in the Old Testament, how much more for us who have Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf? That's why we're not dragging bulls and goats in here this morning. Because Jesus has paid it. Jesus has fulfilled it. Jesus has satisfied it. Out of Zion comes his salvation. He's enacted a new covenant. And so the payment has been made for us Offer the thanksgiving. Offer the praise. Enjoy what God has done with you, for you. When Jesus came, he came looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think that's actually an appropriate summary of the invitation here at the end of Psalm. Worship him in spirit and in truth with thanksgiving. We should feel relief, joy, and rest because of Jesus. We should feel gratitude, wonder, and love for him. We rejoice and praise him. We celebrate that he has saved us and will keep us. We worship him and he will continue to show us his salvation and the fruit of it. So comprehensive is this salvation that though we will die one day, scripture says, not a hair of your head will perish. You're protected like that. For those in Christ, to die means to be present with Jesus in glory forever. Sunday morning should be the freest time of the week. We worship a God who is infinitely above us, asks no payment of us just to come and enjoy and believe what he has done. It's such a small view of God to say what really matters to him, even if you think through it logically, it falls apart right away. What really matters to him is you got in a chair this morning, that you prayed before your meal, that you gave him thanks to something that you think you really earned. How, how petty and worshipless of a God would that be if that's what God really wants of us? Just to do these basic things, to appease him and go about our business. He wants so much more for us. And he offers so much more for us. And so this should be the freest hour of the week for those that in Jesus can lay down every burden, every pain, and then can look forward to a God that has saved them, will keep them, and will complete his salvation when we are like him, with him, in glory. How can we not worship a God like that? So God's invitation still stands this morning. That even with the rebukes, even with the wickedness, even with all of us falling in different places, even just this week against him, he says, come to me, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It glorifies me. I will show you the salvation of God, of Jesus. So believe in Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for you, and be saved. Worship him wholeheartedly with joy and thanksgiving for all that he has done. And that victory in Jesus for us is what we celebrate at the table here. So as we transition to the table, 
we share this table together as a reminder of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for us. Jesus' body, symbolized in the bread, was torn apart for our wickedness. Remember the warning. It says, mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and none to believe, deliver. Jesus came to deliver us. His body was torn apart so that we may be saved and redeemed and reconciled to God. For all our thankless and hypocritical worship, he has made peace with God by being torn, by being broken on our behalf. The bread and the cup here are primarily for the members of City's Church. But if you treasure Jesus, if you want that salvation, then we welcome you to come and eat and drink with us. But if you're not there yet, we ask that you let the elements pass, lest you proclaim something that you do not believe and bring judgment on yourself. His body is true bread. Let us serve you.